0: Man, Hey, good morning. It's good to see you. Um, My name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm the lead teaching pastor. I apologize again for my voice. I'm still sick from last week, but regardless of how I sound, I am excited to be here today and uh, excited to talk about Jesus today, especially in this passage. It's going to be a fun passage for us. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Acts 19 because we're going to jump straight into the text. We've been going through this series called Jesus' People. It's really a study through the book of Acts. It's been very helpful for us as a church. And while you're turning there, I want you to try to take a Polaroid in your mind of the last time you severely overreacted. Not reacted big, but overreacted. Maybe something was threatened, something that was... Precious to you, and it was being threatened to be maybe taken away from you. And whenever you were done throwing your tantrum, you kind of looked around the room and realized you overreacted compared to the way everyone else reacted. Kind of like a kid with their favorite toy being taken away. It's funny how we grow up, but we don't really grow up. You know what I'm saying? I mean, sometimes we take a a toy away from a kid, a frozen wand or a tablet, or something, and the look on their face, the overreaction of what's going on in that moment, the blood vessel popping, the, the, the emotional flailing, the out-of-control chaotic thing that is discipline in that moment. Can you remember the last time or two that you've done that? I want you to capture it just for a moment before we go into this text today. Deal? Deal? All right, because I don't have any, so I'm going to rely on you using yours, okay? We're going to look at the 21st verse in Acts 19. This is the word of the Lord for us today. It's going to be very helpful. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I've been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. So he's staying in Ephesus for just a a small time longer, maybe a few months is what most people believe, right? And the next story is what's happening in Ephesus while he is remaining there and before he goes on. Verse 23. After that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made the silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. Get that? We have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. That's an important statement right there. This is the primary reason. This is one of the passages we don't have a sermon from Paul. He's not preaching in this. But we kind of get a sermon from him because one of his critics is relaying what he's saying. Right? Right there. God's made with hands are not really God's. Verse 27, And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. And that she she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. That's true. This is the largest Greek cult during this time, is the one of Artemis. Verse 28. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion. And they rushed together into their theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. Even some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Asiarchs are just simply educated uh, men of well, they had a good reputation. they were political figures with a good reputation. Verse 32, I find this verse right here astonishing and so helpful and descriptive. Now, some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Okay, so if we just pause right there for a moment, let me remind you, these are a couple things that we've noted over the last week or two regarding Ephesus. There were just over 30 places in the known world that you could worship Artemis, which is the Greek god of fertility, right? Out of all the 30-plus places Ephesus was the biggest. That's where the temple of Artemis was. And remember, we ran the figures last week and discovered that it was actually bigger than Neelan Stadium. It could fit about 25,000 people and was vaulted up as this, this, this amazing place where people come from all over the world. Historians believe that this is one of the most beautiful buildings ever created by the Greeks. That's amazing, right? Now, why is it such an important temple? Well, right in the middle of it was this gross, ugly-looking, I guess, statue, an idol. It was the statue of Artemis, the idol of Artemis. Now, remember last week, we discussed that historians and scholars have never really been able to pinpoint where it came from and what it was made of. Remember, we said that. That's because most believe it was a meteorite. A meteorite. And we're going to find out in the text later on. That's probably the case. So this meteorite comes booming out of the sky. Imagine what that says to a mythological people or people who believe in mythology they're looking at this thing comes out of the sky and it looks faintly like a woman with many breasts so we're going to just kind of put it on a on a dolly and roll it into this temple that we're going to build and everyone's going to worship this thing and it's going to be awesome and it's going to be our statue and as we worship this idol of fertility then we'll be able to make babies and our land will be fertile And when our land starts cranking out crops, Artemis is bigger than just fertility. Now she is a goddess of commerce as well, right? And commerce used to be the thing at Ephesus. But as Athens is, it's kind of already seen its heyday, and it's already in a steady decline because the big port that was necessary for them to carry out commerce was being silted up, and they couldn't get ships in and out anymore, right? So what did they have to rely on? The religious emphasis that is the cult, and the worship of Artemis. So what do you have? You have people out there that are going to make a commercial trade of it. They're still going to try to keep the commerce up. So you have people like Demetrius, this person that works on silver, silver shrines. This would be for people that comes from, you know, all all across the world. They come, they see this, I guess, meteorite, and they want to buy something before they go home. Kind of like a trinket shop. You know, you've been to Gatlinburg, Right? Hey, there's no, if you want to remember your visit to Gatlinburg, there is no shortage of things for you to buy to bring home to remind you of your time there. You can get an airbrush t shirt. You can get some kangaroo jerky. You can get some snow globes. You get some shot glasses, some double shot glasses, and some triple shot glasses. You can get some moonshine. There's all kinds of stuff you can get to bring home and put on a shelf that says, See this? Gatlinburg, baby. I've been there, right? This is not too different. This is not too different. Except for they were worshiping this thing. So you would bring a little, a little version of Artemis home. A little Artemis shot glass. Or a little Artemis snow globe with a little meteorite lady in the middle of it. And you would put it on your, your, your shelf and you would worship this thing. But people were getting saved. And so that was stopping And so he was mad and outrage was come, and he's building this outrage and he's leveraging it into disrupting the people. And it wasn't just that his money was being threatened. He says, Men, this is how we make our money. You know as well as I do, this is where wealth is found, except the money's leaving. But did you catch a little bit of civic pride in there? A little bit of, hey, this is what we're known for. We've always been a great city. And now Paul is not just threatening our financial well being, he's threatening, who we are as a city. Civic pride is something that's real unique, and it's unique to certain cities, right? Knoxville has a lot of civic pride. Not just Knoxville, but can I just tell you from someone's perspective who's lived in different parts of the country, this is true for a lot of college towns, right? I'm a giant college football fan, right? So Vol Nation, sorry for last night, okay? Giant, giant college football fan. Let me tell you what is behind fanatic fan, Whether they've got orange and white on, or crimson and white, whatever whatever color they have on, this is what is behind fanatic football fan. If you tell them their team stinks, and they get enraged, and they flip something over and set it on fire, or they call in the radio show and they eat up all the airtime with what all the officials did wrong, how all, all of a sudden it's like some big official fiasco. Whenever you hear that thing, what they're saying is, is their failure makes me feel a little bit like a failure. I mean, there's a little bit of hey, I want my team to do well. They failed. That stinks. Gosh, maybe next time. But whenever it just breaks your heart and ruins your week, that person, fanatic fan, they've attached their life to that team. You see a little bit of not civic pride, but team pride. So the team doing well means that they're doing well in in some weird way. But when the team does poorly, it means that they're a loser and they have done poorly and they are being defeated. That's why you see a lot of that sometimes. So, even though Knoxville might not have been, uh, seen its heyday, maybe we're not in the, in the decline like this city is, but we understand civic pride, do we not? Hey, we once were a great city, and Paul's saying we're not a great city anymore. He's jeopardizing our city's reputation. I think we get that. I get that. So, the beautiful thing about this passage is we get to see the first time, look in verse 32. Real interesting. Now, some cried out one thing, some another. For the assembly was in confusion. That word assembly, the Greek behind that is ecclesia. It's the same Greek word that gives us the word church. It's a called out people, a people called out of the masses for a specific purpose. This group was called out for destruction, this group is ecclesiaed out for mob violence. We are ecclesiaed out for the purpose of Christ. I can make the case that we are saved from one mob to the next mob. But it's interesting here that we have the word ecclesia used. These people are being set aside to flip stuff over and set it on fire. Here we have the beginnings of a riot. People are mad. Some are saying this. Some people over here, they're saying something totally different. And then you've got a giant group of people that they don't even know why they're there. Have you ever been at a riot before? This is what it looks like. Now, this sounds like a weird thing to be interested in, but over the years, I've been interested in crowd psychology, right? I like crowd or maybe uh, mob psychology is probably a better way to put it. And so I've collected some things over the years. Here's some science that I've collected. I thought I'd throw it up on the screen for you. This is a little bit of a description of crowd or mob psychology. It is intergroup dynamics which fuel pointless behavior. Okay, period. You can go to YouTube and figure that out in less than 30 seconds, right? A bunch of guys equals a YouTube video, whether they're drunk or not. Someone just has to have a camera, right? Intergroup dynamics, which fuel pointless behavior. Riots can assume self-perpetuating dynamics, which is not driven by rational motives, which means that we do stupid things that have no rationality to them at all, right? When individuals form a crowd, they can become irrational and driven by emotion, which occur as part of the rioting. This is what this looks like, okay? You find yourself at a riot. Someone's holding up a sign, and it says something. Fill in the blank. I don't know. Free Tom Brady. That's my favorite lately. Free Tom Brady, man. Free Tom Brady, right? Look, at, look I'm mad, man. I'm, I'm upset. i am got off of work. I'm, I'm going to riot. And then you look over, and you're like, hey, Bob. Why are you here? It's like, I don't know, man, but I see that dude holding up signs and they're holding up signs and I just want to be a part of it. Give me a sign. And you hand him a sign and he's like, Free Tom Brady. doesn't even know who Tom Brady is. And, and then the emotions get so high that someone just kicks over a newsstand, man. I just can't contain myself, man. Free Tom Brady. They kick over a newsstand and then they're throwing matches and all of a sudden a rock whizzes over and, and then riot police come out and they're firing rubber bullets and there's tasers going off. Pointless behavior. The Bible says it long before these brilliant scientists did. People don't even know why they're there. Most of them, it says, most of them did not even know why they had come together. Humanity. Let's go on and read, finish this. Verse 33. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, this is hilarious, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, greatest Artemis of the Ephesians. I could take that for about six minutes. Two hours they're yelling one sentence over and over again. It's pointless, it's chaotic, it's rude, it's loud, it's brutish. That's what's going on. Verse 35, and when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, men of Ephesus, who is there, who does not know that the great city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky. That's why we believe it's a meteorite, most people. Verse 36. So this guy's a bit smoother. He's going to put ice on this thing. Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash, for you've you've brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemous of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone. The courts are open, and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Big idea here in this text today when idols are exposed chaos ensues when idols are exposed chaos is just going to show up the same thing happens today and we don't really need a Demetrius anymore do we to build us idols our hearts have become Demetrius our hearts can fashion an idol out of anything Paul back then is looking at them and saying, "Hey, God's made with your hands? Those aren't gods. I mean, you took the chainsaw and chiseled the bear out of the wood and put it on your doorstep. It's a piece of wood. you made it. You made it, you know you made it. Gods made with hands aren't gods. But if Paul were here today, he would look at us and say, "God's made with your hearts. They're not gods either." You see, John Calvin, a long time ago, he, and now he made this comment not just on Christians, but on humanity as a whole. He basically said our hearts, our minds, our hearts are factories for idols. And we need really little material to make and craft an idol. And I think that this is true. You see, all we need is a good thing. It doesn't even have to be a bad thing. We always imagine idols being bad things. Take a good thing. All you need to do to make it an idol is move it up on a different shelf and make it an ultimate thing. Take what is good in your life Make it ultimate, and you've created an idol where it receives all of your time and all of your treasure because it is ultimate. And we can take very good things and ruin them by making them idols. Look at uh, kids. We can idolize our kids. This is what it looks like, the red-faced dad at the little league game. What is he doing? It's just like college football fanatic, right? He's attached his meaning and his identity to how often his kid can get on base. Right? Or 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 the, 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 the tyrannical homeschool parents. Their kids must get straight A's. They must ace seven different instruments and speak three different languages. Why? Because they've got to pass college before they're out of high school. You know, they've got to. So, I mean, we put so much on our kids. And if you're not careful, if you're not careful and you take a good thing, which is homeschooling, and you take a good thing, which is athletics, and you take a great thing, which is your kids, and you put it up as an ultimate thing, then it must meet all of your needs. And if your kids can't pull it off, it means you can't pull it off. And if your kids can't deliver the goods, it means you're a loser. It means you've missed the boat. But if your kids can cure cancer between the seventh and the eighth inning, what does that look like for you? So how do we worship this idol? We throw all of our time, we throw all of our treasure, all of our focus on our kids making it. Because it creates a situation where we get our identity and our approval. You see how easy that is? It could be a good thing the Bible. I've known guys that read this Bible over and over and over again, hour to hour a day. It's all marked up. It's got neon colors and six different bookmarks. And man, they've got a lot of it memorized. But it's not to know Jesus more. It's not to love Jesus more. It's to master something. It's to have knowledge to fix the things in our lives and be the smartest person in the room. Is, is this a good thing? It's a good thing. The Bible's a gift to us. It's the written word of God. Is it the ultimate thing? Hear me carefully. No. It describes the ultimate thing. This is not the ultimate thing. It shows us who the ultimate one is. So, am I saying don't read the Bible? No, I'm saying triple down on whatever you're doing. But don't do it so that you master something. Don't do it so that you could be better than everybody else. Do it so that you know and love Jesus. Let that be the fuel behind how you handle this. Otherwise, you're just using it to get an identity. Relationships are good, aren't they? Boy, we could really ruin those to give us something. Food. Food's good food's good, but we can use it to give us comfort, and we can abuse it. Money is good. Rest is good. There are so many things, though, that we can craft an idol out of. A heart just doesn't need very much. We, we are very good Demetriuses as it is. And what we'll do is we'll pour all our time and all our treasure down just in the hopes that that idol will give us what our heart really, really wants, what we really hunger after, this functional heaven on earth. It's true for all of us. It's true for me. You know, I think of this psalm all the time that Robert Robinson wrote a long time ago from Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. And he says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the Lord I love. Take this heart, Lord. Take it and seal it for Thy courts courts above. And my heart does wander. I was walking around this morning praying about how my heart personally has wandered. You know where our hearts wander towards? The broken promises that we keep hearing in our ear that we're going to get this heaven on earth that we've always wanted. Remember, we talked about that last week a little bit, and you can go back and listen to it, that the favorite sales pitch for our idols in our life is the lie that we are almost there. You're almost there. This heaven on earth that you've been pining for, paying for with your time, paying for with your treasure, you're, you're this close you just got to sell out just a little bit more. And it's funny how we keep buying it, isn't it? It's funny how we do that. I mean, no we don't really get these moments of lucid thought. We don't get them often where we go, "Wait, wait, wait a minute." I keep hearing this broken promise that if I just work my fingers to the bone, I'll finally get all the comfort and I'll get the money and I'll get the approval that I've always wanted, but that's what I've been doing for 15 years and I still don't have it. Something's fishy here. Something's wrong. I'm getting wise. That doesn't happen. We work and we work and we work Overworkers, do we not? And we still don't get the security or the approval that we're really looking for. And all the idol has to say is, is you're almost there. And we're like, oh, gosh, I hope so. I thought so. I'm going to keep doing it. We just keep buying it. And you know that you've hit your idol's nerve when the response is chaos, rioting internally. Externally. That's what we see in this text. We have two ecclesias. I love that the same word is used. Those set aside for violence and those set aside for Jesus. Now, when the culture at large chases idols, that's called normal. But when the church, God's people, chases after idols, that's called adultery. You see, it's a harsh word. Adultery is a harsh word, especially in today's climate, right? We have a lot of prophets, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea. They specialize in using adultery as the metaphor for a people going after idols. They glue the two of them together. Where the Lord is the groom and his people are the bride. And we always go after looking for other lovers, finding ourselves in illicit arms. And the prophets call out against it. Don't turn there. In Jeremiah 5, he says, How can I pardon you? Your children have forsaken me and have sworn by those who are no gods. When I fed them to the full, they committed adultery. You see, our groom, he has given us everything we could ever want. He's delivered everything. He's all supplying. There's no comfort You could ever get that he is not supplying to you. There's no comfort that you could ever really get and go, this is what I need, that he is not handing out. Same thing with identity. But the thing is, is I don't think we believe it. I don't believe it. My heart doesn't believe it. I believe that the creator can't give those things to me. I have to go to creation to get those things. So what do we do? We turn into the bride that is not so loyal. And we go after different lovers. We go after adulterous affairs. And we cheat on our groom, the Lord. This is tough, isn't it? I mean, this is called adultery. That's how the Lord sees it. I mean, this should refocus it for you a little bit. I sat on this for hours this week thinking about it. That should refocus Some of the sins I I just treat with insignificance. That's not a big deal. Maybe it is. Maybe the Lord looks at it as adultery. Therefore, it's a pretty big deal. Maybe it changes your video game time. Maybe it's a little bit bigger than a hobby, friend. Maybe you're going to the gym for the wrong reason, friend. Eating food for the wrong reason. It changes our overworking, doesn't it? It should refocus it for all of us. Why we go to school. If you're getting your approval, your security, your comfort from another lover, then you're creating an adulterous affair. Now that's harsh clarity. It's hand delivered. You know, there's a book in the Bible. You should take the time to read it if you've never written it. I think it's like just over a, or if you ever read it. I'm still sick. Give me a pass. Never read it. There's a book in the Bible, Hosea, it's just over 12 chapters, I think. It's an interesting story, right? Hosea was a prophet in the northern kingdom, just right around the peak of its affluence. And they're going after all kinds of idol worship, thick idol worship. So the Lord deals as a groom with his people, the bride. And how does he do it? He tells one of his prophets to marry a prostitute as a living declaration as a living message before all people his name is Hosea and her name is Gomer and he marries her and you'd hope that the story would be a good one after that like her life is reformed and they fall madly in love that would be very Disney right she has a checkered history he's kind of an insecure prophet they meet they kind of work together they make babies you know that's how you expect but that's not how it goes Sure, they create a family, and she runs off, and she runs off, and he goes after her. And what we would do today, if we were there in Hosea's time, we'd say, Hosea, leave her. Are you kidding me? She's a mess. She doesn't want you. That's why she keeps running away from you. She wants her illicit love and all the different suitors for her heart. She doesn't want this marriage. She's thrown it away stop. Stop pursuing. It doesn't make sense. That's what we would say. And this is the bad news. The bad news for you and me is that whatever's bringing us so much, whatever, comfort, peace, security, identity, validity, whatever, whatever's bringing you that thing that you just cannot live without it. If it's taken away or taken out of your life, your life is meaningless that is the thing that you are pursuing. You're committing adultery, and like this woman, you and I, we don't deserve to be pursued. We're worse than Gomer. Again, don't miss this. This is what the Bible is telling us, this is why it's in the Bible, friends. It's not just a good, passionate story. We're Gomer, running away, don't deserve the love. But this is the hinge on which the whole gospel turns. Because we don't deserve the love, the good news is is that we get the love we don't deserve. This is why it's particularly good news. In the third chapter of Hosea, it says this. Don't turn there. You can read it on your own time. I, I encourage you to do it. And the Lord said to me, go again, again. Sometimes again is a tougher word than other times, right? Here it's a tough word. Go again and love a woman who is loved by another man. And she is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel. It's crazy. Go again. So he does. He pursues the unpursuable. Verse 2, so I bought her. Why is he buying her? It's because now she is worthless to all those old lovers now. And so she has to be redeemed off of an auction block. I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. So in order to get his bride back, he redeems her. Now here's the gospel for us in the book of Hosea as idol worshipers. This is the gospel for us. We have one who is better than Hosea, a better pursuer, who found a more worthless bride who's been with more worthless adulterers. And he doesn't just pay a little bit of money. He doesn't just pay a price. He gives his entire life to redeem us, to purchase us. It's the good gospel. And some of you are thinking, yeah, Luke, I mean, I've heard this before. I've heard this before. But this is how good it is. Today, when you go home and you go back to the same idols that you have, he'll still pursue you, Christian. If he's redeemed you, he will still pursue you. You wouldn't. You would quit on the person. We would encourage others to do the same thing, but he will continually pursue us. Even after you've heard something like this. You see, we don't have to run to the arms of another suitor. We have what we need in Jesus. He's given us the comfort that we keep scratching and clawing and flipping rocks over to find in other idols. He's given us the identity that we need. He's given us everything that we need. Here's so, I need to drive this towards a close. So how do you find an idol in your life? Let's apply this as best as we can right now. How do you find an idol and what do you do once you find it? You've exposed it. How do you deal with it, right? I'd like to talk about it in three dimensions. One, how do you do it with yourself? Secondly, how do you do it with the person next to you? Thirdly, how do you do it with the world? Okay. Upward, inward, outward. It's very simple. I think the self-diagnostic question I have to ask myself is what is this idol giving me? What heaven or version of a functional heaven is it promising to deliver to me? It's a broken promise because as we've always seen when it comes to idols, as we've always seen, they always overpromise and they consistently underdeliver. But what is at least the promise? Think about work. For overworkers, because there are overworkers in here. I'm definitely one of them. And you can overwork and be a student, by the way. I did it. It's possible. But when work has become the ultimate for you, what is it giving you? I mean, the easy answer is money. But what is the money giving you? Well, things. what, what, What can be the things be giving you? Now, there's, there could be 10 different answers to this because we all overwork for different reasons, I would say. But one of them, let's just say it's just comfort. Maybe it's comfort. I need things to give me comfort because Saturday is the day that I have fun. So I work my tail off from Monday all the way through Friday, getting off as soon as I can to have as much fun as I can on Saturday. So a functional heaven for you might be on Saturday, being on the river on, I don't know, an orange and white jet ski, right? Right? with Peyton Manning's license plate on the back of it, and you're towing it behind your big tricked-out truck with a Yeti sticker on it, and you've got all your buds with you, and that's heaven to you. You're like, this is it. This is why I work so hard. I'm enjoying this moment so much. What would be a functional hell for you? Guess being bored? Being bored, being without friends? So what do you do to worship? You break yourself. You break yourself in order to achieve this thing called fun. Now listen, overworking, you could be doing that because you need an identity, you need a security. But do you see how this works? What is the idol giving you? Social media, let's talk about that one just for a second. Social media is a good thing, right? I think it's a good thing, right? I don't think it's like a plague on humanity or anything like that. I think social media's got some really cool benefits to it, but when it's become the ultimate thing What version of heaven is it trying to hand deliver to you? I can think of a couple. I'll give you one. It's the desire to be liked. The desire to be retweeted and shared. I'm going to say something I think is brilliant. And if the world thinks that what I said is brilliant or took a picture of, is fascinating then that means that i'm fascinating and then i'm brilliant especially if these people are people i don't even know sharing it with other people that i don't know so being you know in your functional heaven is just being a viral person i'm viral every time i say something it goes viral every time i take a picture of something everybody loves it that means that everybody loves it. so what, what what does it look like a functional hell typing something hitting enter and crickets right you're just so tempted to like it yourself just to get it started right Does the world see what I'm trying to say? Does it like me right now? For some people, it might be a different heaven and a different hell. I've seen some people that they're addicted to social media just because they want to know what's going on in the world. They're fascinated with knowing who is saying what. That person said this. I caught that. This is going on over here, and I know exactly what's going on. I know exactly what's going on all the time in all different realms. I mean, ask me. I know what's going on. Cause I've got mastery of all details and pop culture and everything that's going on right now. I've, I've got it down. And so a functional hell would be being out of the loop, hearing news that you didn't bring to somebody else, but having to hear it from someone else. So what, what might worship look like to you? You always are in front of the screen so that you can be seen and see others. You see how you can break social media? It's not a bad thing. Quit breaking it. It's not the ultimate thing. It's just a good thing. How do we get rid of it once we see it? We do the same thing we would, I guess, encourage someone else to do if we caught them in an adulterous affair. You find your best friends in an adulterous affair. What do you tell them to do? Leave your old lover and reacquaint yourself with your spouse. Leave your old lover and reacquaint yourself with your spouse. This is what we'd say in the real world and this is what we need to do with ourselves. We need to leave that broken idol that keeps promising but never delivering. And we need to remind ourselves of how good our groom is. Apply the gospel to our own lives. What, What is the good news for me right now? Even this morning, walking up and down the halls going, all right, Lord, I know that this can be an idol to me and I know what the bad news is and I even know what the good news is but help me, remind me of how beautiful you are, because I keep going to this well for this stuff, but Lord, I know I know you're better. Help me see that. Nurture in my heart more of an affection, Father, for you. I would love you more. This is how you handle that. This is how you do it. Lose your old lover. Reacquaint yourself with your spouse. How do you handle each other? This is a little bit of an extension. How do you carry this process, this process out with those around you that you love because no as soon as you do chaos will ensue chaos is going to happen remember you're about to tell someone that they might need to put down something that is incredibly special to them and that they're in an adulterous affair you might lose people doing this when I have hard conversations with people about idols in their lives a lot of times I lose them I lose losing meaning I don't I don't really see them after that it's a hard talk You will get chaos, panic, overreacting, yelling, fuming. They will not respond well all the time when you do this. But you can't change this person. Only Jesus can change a heart like that. It's not on you to fix this person. You can't. It's just on you to lead them to the one that can fix this person. Okay? It's Jesus' job. But if you are lovingly bringing something like this to someone that you know, a couple quick points. One is to be humble be super humble okay because you're going to bring something to them they need to know that you know that you got it on you as well hey listen man i'm just going to talk to you about this idol i keep seeing and i get it i get it because that thing that thing i think is giving you I, i can get it from another place just as quick in fact i have be humble secondly be bold Say what needs to be said and say it clear. Don't be weird. Don't be weird. Don't beat around the bush trying to be gentle. Just say it. Just say it. Get it off your chest. Be clear. It's an act of love. It will be loving. Another one is to be gospel-oriented. Remind them of their first groom. If all you do is tell them how horrible the sin is and that's it, you're just slapping their wrist. Look how bad this is. like taking a dog and rubbing their face in, in dookie. You ever seen people do that whenever they're training dogs? Is that still the thing? Hey, don't do that. See what you did in my rug? You whooped the dog. That's what we do. Look how bad this is that you just did. You see what you did over here? Mm-mm. And then what do you leave that Christian to do? Well, i got to figure out a way not to get my wrist slapped anymore. I have to perform better, right? I have to be better than I was. Remind them of how great their groom is. Remind them of how beautiful Jesus is, not how ugly their sin is. How ugly their sin is will become evident whenever they love their Jesus more. You love Jesus, you will hate your sin. You love Jesus more, you will hate your sin more. But if you hate your sin more, you might not love Jesus more. Okay? So be gospel clear. Another one is be on repeat. It will take multiple applications. The first conversation is the hardest, but you will need multiple ones. That's how you handle one ecclesia. What about the other, the mob? the mob set aside, the world, the city of Knoxville. They still have Artemis. They still have Artemis snow globes and stickers on their car. What do you do with that? They've got idols, and they're totally fine worshiping those idols. I will tell you, this is where the work is done in evangelism. It's done where they're already worshiping. They're already worshiping gods, friends, Every. Every culture has idol worship. Man, woman, and child, every niche, every continent, we all have idols. Good evangelism is done by spending time not with them where their idol worship is going on, but spending time showing them what their idol worship is so that they see it clearly. And once you do this, once you show them and you discern it and you expose it, you will get chaos. Here's a couple points. Again, be humble. Be humble. Admit that this is a problem. Listen, what you're looking for right here, friend, you're looking for I, approval. Your dad never loved you. Your coaches never put you on the team. On and on. Your whole life, it's been very obvious. You're looking for approval. You're looking for validity. Someone approve me. Give me an identity. I'm in the in club. I can do this. Right? But this is what you're really looking for. And, and the reason I know this is because that's what I'm looking for. It's what, what millions of people are looking for. Be humble. Be humble with them. Another one is be obvious. Show them that that idol's never really given them what they've always wanted. Just ripped off diet versions of it, just enough to keep them on the line. Show them the obvious nature of the fact that <laughs> you've never gotten the approval you've wanted from this or the comfort you've wanted from this. You've never gotten it before. Isn't it funny though? You've been trying for 30 years to get it and it's still not really ever come through for you? How much longer? How many more treasures are you going to throw at its feet? Another one is be bold. Again, say what needs to be said. Don't be weird. Be clear, okay? And then be gospel-oriented. There is an alternative to the idols. We have a king. Show them our groom, that they would fall in love with our groom. I'll tell you what, go ahead and stand with me. I'm going to finish here. There's a great passage I'm going to read over you as we go into worship here or as Kevin comes out in a moment. Friends, I want to remind you that when Jesus rescued his church, when he rescued you and me, he put a robe of white on us. We have white on. Yes, we go chasing after our idols. We find new illicit lovers anytime we can and our better Hosea comes and rescues us and gets us and he finds us with white on as if we'd never done anything. That's not because we're awesome. It's because Jesus was beautiful and he gave us a beautiful life as he took our shame-filled life from us. And we see this in Revelation. I see something very beautiful here in 19, the 19th chapter. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. And then I love this next part. It was granted her to clothe her with fine linen, bright and pure. We didn't do that ourselves. Our righteous deeds didn't do that. Our muscle and might and power and brilliance didn't do that. It was granted us. We were dressed in this white that we wear. We didn't adorn ourselves. We were adorned. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the only reason we bring any righteous deeds is because a life has been given us that we didn't live, won by a righteous king. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. This is the true word of God over us. We have a brilliant groom who chases after a scandalous bride who's clothed in white. Even though, come on, we have so many illicit lovers. But he's the better Hosea. Even though we're repeat offenders, he keeps coming after us and after us and after us. Listen, let that lead you to love him more. He's persistent after your heart. Today, even while we're sitting here, some of you got nervous at even the topic coming up. Oh gosh, he's talking about, he's talking about idols today. I, knew, I Here, this is my, I'm going to hide it. He's not talking about you, sweetheart. He's talking about other people. Can't see my idol. You got nervous just that I even brought it up. Listen, he knows. He sees it. He sees how your heart loves it and how you've elevated something good to be something ultimate. And he's still coming after you because he loves you and he's passionate for you. That's how awesome our king is. That's how beautiful our Lord is. As our love grows for him, we just hate sin more. That's how you break idols in half, friends. Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you because you've shown me how deep and how dark my heart can be and that you've still loved me. My heart is Demetrius. I can make shrines anytime I want, anytime I want. I can make an idol out of anything, goofy things, noble things, stupid things, dumb things. I can make an idol after anything because my heart is Demetrius because I am Demetrius. But Father, you're such a beautiful Hosea, better than a prophet, better than just paying a large sum for a repeat offending bride. You come after me, and you've given your life. So Father, lead us as our hearts face the things that make it chaotic. Everyone walking in this room has something. We have something in our life that if it were to be touched or removed, we go chaotic, we riot. We start throwing rocks and kicking things over and setting things on fire and throwing tantrums. Lord, show us how you are better. Show us your beauty, God. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb, you say. Blessed are those. Father, I know that there are some in here who are not invited to the marriage supper because you are not their groom. You are not their groom. Lord, that there would be a rescue today. A rescue today, Father, where you recover hearts that are far from you. And I know as I'm praying, there are some in here and your hearts are struggling and your whole life has been about chasing the various Artemises in your life. And I'm telling you to put those idols down, to put them down, and to fall hard after the King of Kings who's loved you and given his life to rescue you, to call you to a different love and a different relationship as he is the better groom. So Father, I pray that you would do a work in their heart, even today, today in this very day, that you would do a work in their heart. That as we go into worship, you would do a work in all of our hearts. Let this be a day of us throwing idols down. We love you, Jesus. You're so good. You're so good. And amen.